Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to part three of our, um, frankly, amazing Band of Brothers cast reunion. Um, we're enjoying this so much. Um, today we're going to carry on talking about filming. Um, in particular, I really want to get into episode seven because so many people list it as their favourite episode. Um, Peter O'Meara, who played Lieutenant Dyke, what do you remember about filming? We prepped to run into the town of Foy. There was a lot of anxious tension preparation we didn't really know what was going to happen they were wiring everything to explode and i remember just my walking through you know just rehearsing in my head what was you know what the moves would be and then they when we were ready to go everything went hot and it just became i can't even describe it it's it's well it's the closest to combat i should ever hope to be near i mean it was electrifying there was just things exploding everywhere firing this machine gun it was just noise fire and we just ran. We just ran around. We think we did it two or three times. And every time we did it, it was it was incredible. So just that energy, that surge, that everything that you rehearsed kind of goes out the window because now you your actions are quite natural. So just to make it to the haystack, just to give the command, just to think and to ex- avoid the exploding uh, device and all of that, we're running on raw energy, and that's what's captured in the in the scene. And Rick and I you know, stumbling and, and halfway through on the way down, we get to the haystack and then everybody falls in and, um, and George Khalil is there and, and the whole weapons platoon, we get, we get hunkered down. And uh, every time we shot it, it was just electrified. Rick Gomez, who played George Lutz, what are your recollections of these scenes? I got, I got to say one thing to Maddie really quick, dude. Uh, I, you know, it's it's twenty years ago, whatever whatever it was. I guess it's twenty years, right, guys? Is it yeah, it's twenty now. Yeah. So 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 twenty years ago, and so you can reflect over twenty years and go. There's a there's a, there are some pretty important things that happen to you, um, j- just on set. Whereas an actor, you go, oh fuck, that was amazing. I just learned sixteen things in four seconds, and and I think I was around something that's going to touch people or or be a part of uh, the iconography of our lives for a while. And it doesn't happen a ton, but you do have them. You have moments of like, oh shit, that was really good. Somebody just brought God into the room or whatever the fuck that is. I don't even know what it is. The, the, um, the untangible it, right? And we were doing, I was with Donnie when, when Spears comes back to relieve, uh, uh, to, to relieve uh, Dyke. And, um, and when Spears comes into that shot, sitting there in that moment with Donnie and, and sort of th- that scene going on. And I I'm, I'm trying to think who else is in that scene with us by the hay, hay bale, by the, by the old, you know, in seven, uh, I, I mean, it might've yeah. been just me, Donnie and Dyke. Right. Anyway, Maddie, you come running through the woods and there, there, there's a, bu- you know, a bunch of shells go off and, and you come through the smoke of this thing. And I remember Donnie and I looking at the end of that and just like, we were nine years old. Donnie and I were nine <laughs> years old. And we looked at each other and we just went like, holy shit, we saw that for real. <clears throat> we were there when that just happened. And then I remember watching the show and then watching the shot and go, nobody could get it. <clears throat> you had to be there for real. Like it fucking happened. And I <clears throat> remember feeling like this little kid in this moment. And so the magic of whatever work everybody put into that to get to that space and the magic of where Tom and Steven were and the whole, I think that was, I think that was, um, who directed that one? It was David Frankel maybe, right? David Frankel, David Frankel. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so uh, what David was doing, what everybody was doing, all the work that everybody was doing, 
to be a part of that and have these little shots that you can look back on and go, oh my God, I lived through that moment. I lived through a moment that was a different angle on what everybody else sees. But Maddie, I remember thinking of you in that moment that it was one of those proud, really deeply proud moments to be an actor because mm -hmm. surrendering to that moment was just fucking fearless, man. And I, I remember you coming yeah. to us and me going like, holy shit and you kind of gave us this smile like i'm here you do that you do that, you do that. no one's dead let's go and it was, uh, it was in the moment it was just like holy shit like it was it was it's beyond words yes peter i remember when we shot it the incredible you know through the smoke <laughs> spears comes it is straight out of a hollywood movie and mm. I, I vividly remembered the moment because it was like wow exactly what rick was saying like Oh my God! It just looks incredible. It felt incredible, and it, if you when you look at the show, it's still what a highlight. Uh, and to get to be the guy coming through the smoke to the rescue is is pretty great. I think for for Matt. Um, so I mean, just me, the performer, there as we shouted, it was an electric. Matt Settle, you were playing the hero, of course. Talk us through it. Well, cer certainly one of the talisman aspects of acting is you you, you can pick up a you can pick up something that's imbued with so much meaning and you don't even know until you pick it up or you can see something happen like that. And, or you can, you can, you can have a window. It's almost like there's so many portals. It's like you're, you're, uh, you're shooting a film, but you're outside of time in a way. And, mm -hmm. and what Rick was just, was that Rick just talking? That was Rick. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got an amazing voice, Rick. Um, anyway, <laughs> after do you know what you're, that moment that Rick's just described so brilliantly, and, and it was the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen. And this is my fangirl moment. Alina's going to get hers later, but yeah, I completely fell in love with you in that scene. I was mind blown. Ross McCall, who played Leave Got, go ahead. Definitely one of the most iconic scenes in the in the yeah. Uh, you know, when everybody talks about favorite episodes, and there's probably two that people really always mention, and mine by far is episode seven, and I think I'm in it for a heartbeat. I mean, I'm not even there, but when I watch it now, 20 years on, I mean, there's just, it, throughout that episode, there was iconic moments, and most of them are Maddie and, and Spears and, and Lip. I mean, you know, mm. even when Lipton's watching Spears, and he's like, and then he came right back, that voiceover, <laughs> yeah. he just ran and came, I mean, it's just, that's the moment for the show. It was really you know, a big icon. Yeah. Matt, you nailed him, I have to say. Yeah, I guess I have a natural aloofness, just the way my brain works. That, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember Rick Gomez and, uh, you know, other people would just so, hey, 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 Spears, where are you? What are you thinking about? What are you, what, what are you, what are you doing? You okay? You all right? Yeah. Um, because I'm off, you know, feeling something intrinsically. So I guess that lended itself to playing the character. I'm sure you, got, you, you all had moments like that where you just kind of zone out. Uh, in the middle of shooting and uh, you you feel like you're lost in t in time so to speak yeah. Mm. Yeah. you're not mm. yeah do you get him he's a complex man people why people do what they do in a given moment uh is anybody's guess let's say spears knew after a couple of payphone calls with his wife back in england that uh, things weren't going well who knows i don't i don't know I've been, uh, maybe he maybe he felt suicidal. Maybe he was like, uh, you know, yeah. He, he didn't care. He didn't care what happened. Maybe he's like, I feel terrible. Let me do it. You know, who who, yeah. who knows what plays in the hearts of men at a given moment? I mean, honestly, my my belief now is that everybody's God doing business as everybody. You know, and we're all here having these experiences. We're all kind of God in a collective creating this tapestry of what is consciousness, you know? So why do we do what we do? I don't know. Why, why did Spears run across Foy? There's a lot of circumstances. As actors, we try to produce as much as that as we can in the background before we get to the stasis of the scene. We try to, we try to create the backstories that will make us believable for an audience and suspend that disbelief and root it in something that's got a vibrational frequency of truth for us because we, we, wrote that letter to ourselves or whatever, whatever you did to make it real for you so that it's believable for an audience, you know? Um, mm. So I, I know that I went to Foy and I looked for a place where Spears might've made that run. Mm. And it was a, the only place I could find is it was a lot further 
than it was in on the day. You know, when we shot it, it was a couple of uh, cornfields. You know, when in the town of Foy, it was it was like a marathon. You know, it's like so it w- it wouldn't have been as dramatic in real life from what I saw. Now now maybe everything had changed. I don't know, but I actually went to the town of Foy. I saw the depressions in the forest. It's probably pretty crazy to be walking around there because there were, they say there was still shells that were unexploded and all of that stuff, but I had to see. So um, who knows? I mean, and I think it, a lot of it, you know, people get thrown on, characters got thrown under the bus for dramatic effect. Um, yeah. And That's so the, the actors that portray them, um, at least in, in, in regards for that, I've had that happen to me. I've had, I've been cut out of films that I got. I was so excited. I got a film and I'm, I'm on the editing floor. Not, it could be my performance. Maybe uh, you just keep moving forward. You know, I, if I thought about it, um, I wouldn't be thinking about the things I should be thinking about. So um, yeah, it's a, it, it, when it's something so epic, yeah, you're going to have regret that that character got thrown under the bus, but we all do our part to serve the overarching theme, which is to honor the men that actually did this, that fought such a great evil in the world. Um, yeah. And hopefully we'll get to the one to the day where, where we don't have to make war movies anymore, ever again. Peter, we've mentioned you played Lieutenant Dyke. Um, and to make Spears look that good, your character had to suffer, right? But from the writer's point of view, I think it's, it's sort of difficult. You know, um, like look, all of us would wish that our characters had been discussed or you know discovered or I don't know what I'm say. You know, that there was more. Yeah. There was more for Smoking Gordon. There was more for Lieutenant Dyke. There was more for. Uh, but in the end, you only have you have to tell it from somebody's point of view, and it's really Winters, right? What do you make of what happened, Peter? Look, I'm going to just read something from the book because as I prepped to talk to you today, I just took out the book. I haven't read it in a while. Mm-hmm. But here's a quote uh, from The Breaking Point, which is, there's no such thing as getting used to combat. The army psychiatrist stated in an official report on combat exhaustion, each moment of combat imposes a strain so great that men will break down in direct relation to the intensity and duration of their exposure. Psychiatric casualties are as inevitable as gunshot and shrapnel wounds. The general consensus was that a man reached his peak of effectiveness in the first 90 days of combat, that after that his efficiency began to fall off, that he became steadily less valuable thereafter until he was completely useless. So, you know, it's in the book, it's in Stephen Ramos's book, it's all there. It's the pressures that I folded under um, are not unique to him. It's happened to other people. And in fact, when I was in Normandy last year, I got to spend some time with some great people from the 82nd Airborne. And one of them finally said to me, you know, what your character does, I've had that actually happen. I had a, he was a sergeant. He said, I had a commanding officer who during an exercise drill, like they were used, it was a live fire drill, it froze, just totally froze. And somebody else had to come in, take over. And, and, you know, he got back eventually, but uh, it, it's not unusual. It does. In the kind of epic nature of Band of Brothers, I suppose Dyke gets blamed or carries the weight of this. You know, it's, it's much heavier you know, because in, in the storytelling, the mistakes that other people made or the faults that other people had are not portrayed, right? Yeah. So, the, and I think what gets lost, I would say, although I understand that there's not much time when you're making a drama, What's get, what gets lost is the humanity. So what we did film was we filmed Dyke leaving. There was a voiceover about Lieutenant Dyke leaving. <clears throat> there was a voiceover about his promotion afterwards. Uh, I think essentially he's not a bad person. You know, he's not. He's not a traitor. He's not right. I think you've you've summed it up. I, I think perfectly and eloquently because apparently you have said that rightly or wrongly he has been judged forever by the worst day of his life exactly that's it um woody just to bring in um you you said that um he had two bronze stars one of them just a few days earlier and that's not shown and the fact that he's wounded is not shown either so so what has been dropped of dyke um to make the story that we admittedly all love so much in band of brothers um but but at what expense for Lieutenant Dyke? Well, I, I called um, Reg Jans, who's the best Baston guide, to check my facts out this afternoon. And um, it, 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 Dyke is a casualty, no pun intended, of, of bad timing. 
I mean, he, he had done Normandy, he'd done Market Garden, he earned a first bronze star in Uden in Holland for coordinating a patrol under fire in, in an incident that actually sounds remarkably similar to the Foy action. And then on January the 3rd, which is the same day while Bill Garnier and Joe Toy lose their legs, Dyke is, is decorated with a bronze star, a second one, for pulling three men out under small arms fire, which was a patrol across the road towards Noville. And, and by the time the attack comes in on Foy, he's been, as, as Peter so you know, wonderfully said, he'd been on the line since Normandy. Um, and he was definitely wounded in that attack near the haystack. Clancy Lyle of Verbatoon, who's not portrayed in the show, said that you know, he saw, saw the, the hit go into, uh, into Dyke's shoulders. So he's physically wounded. And um, yeah, and within a few days of it, he loses command of the company, although only in a promotional way. He gets, the, he gets promoted up to regiment and ends, ends up becoming General Maxwell Taylor's aide-de-camp. So he, he had a good career, but it's just that in the process of the show, there's no backstory you know peter comes into the show there's no you know peter as he said there, there's a narration at the end of saying he went on elsewhere but when he, he joins the company there's no narration saying and dyke was a veteran of normandy and holland he's brought in with the audience understanding he's a he's a novice when he isn't so and and we think it's because they just didn't research him properly because they believe there were no dyke family members alive and they kind of went by the testimonies of people like um, Lipton and Garnier, who, who, who didn't like Dyke for whatever reason, and mainly because it's timing. As I said, he comes in, they've lost Winters to, to the battalion, they've lost Heiliger, and everybody's on uh, you know, short tempers, everybody's knackered and exhausted and fed up, and he comes in and you know, he could have come in and given them all $100 each person they still wouldn't have liked. You know, he's joining a team when they've been, they've been playing together as a team for so many weeks and months, and here comes a new kid. And it's very. He's hard. on a complete hiding to nothing, isn't he? Exactly. You know, it's it's like it's like you know you you know you're a football girl, Alex. It's like a player coming in to Chelsea from Tottenham. You know, you're hated at the beginning. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're coming in with baggage. I'm not you know comparing World War Two to football, but Dyke is just a casualty of he comes in at the wrong time. Peter, so Dyke died in 1989. So they, did they believe that there were no family? Have any family come forward since the programme? Or is it still that we don't know anything about his descendant? I remember Scotty, uh, you know, some of the guys would be talking with their real counterparts. And thought, wow, that's amazing, you know, that you have Phil Garnier on the other end of the phone and you can talk to him. There was certainly no line of communication for me. You know, I think about that. I think about his, his family and what they must feel about the betrayal. I don't think it's entirely fair. Um, but they're just, you know, they're telling a story. And as Woody rightly says, it is a bit slanted as to who whose opinion you're, you know, that's not just died, but obviously so this, you know. So, I mean, the blessing, even though, yes, I play the guy that nobody likes and all that stuff, uh, is it's one of the more memorable, for, for, for better or worse, is the memorable moment uh, in the story. I'm, uh, I'm grateful for it. I miss that people think that I died. That's the general. They're like, oh, you, then you died behind the haystack. And like, you didn't die. That's yeah. like, that's some editing. And think also the labeling of a coward is just not very helpful. I think in this day and age, you know what I mean? If you really want to talk about people and humanity and understanding, because that's, that's where we're going, right? That's, as we mature, that's where we want to be. We want to have a broader understanding of, of the real toll of combat. He, he didn't run away. He just, under the pressure of the moment, didn't know what to do. You know, that's very human. And I know... I mean, okay, Barty, how do you portray that? Like, how do you, does everyone go, oh, poor Dyke? No, uh, obviously that's, the, the mission is the mission. And I think as Willie has said, he was just a victim of circumstance. He was not the right guy for that particular job on the day it happens, you know? And maybe if he'd have been the feature of episode seven, um, then it would have been portrayed very differently. I mean, it is art, isn't it? It's... Exactly, exactly. Like um, Mark Warren's character, like that has a much more sort of human touch to it, doesn't it? And he had his story arc, didn't he? The Blythe had his redemption, didn't he? But Blythe had a visible on-screen redemption of, of, of volunteering for a patrol. Whereas Dykes, not that Dyke needed a redemption, but anything that happened to Dyke was off-screen. So there was no, there was no um, conclusion to it. Um, so, so Blythe, a similar, similar story, but Blythe has, a, yeah, has that denouement to it, which is um, yeah, the difference, I think. 
when you meet you're meeting people and things, I've had one or two women, you know, they just they automatically think that you're that guy. They go, oh my god, you're just horrified to see Lieutenant Dyke. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I mean, how else am I supposed to do? Look, I wasn't there. I'm sorry. It's you know, but that's the story you carry. You hear that. You know, the people just see you through to through, through the they don't see the actor, they just see what they see, don't they? To me, though, they're not the ones who matter. Um, it's nice that they show up, but if they don't comprehend it, um, the people who matter did tell us about Dick Winters. Me, meeting Winters and him giving me his nod of approval and saying, You did a great job. That's and in that moment, I will treasure for the rest of my life. It was incredibly moving. Did that mean more because of the way that you had to portray Dyke as well, to have that from someone who knew him? Absolutely. I felt incredibly, I mean, I was in awe, obviously, in Mira and meeting Winters. I feel incredibly guilty and sort of feeling shy. I shouldn't say anything. Like, I'm the guy who carries the story of the guy who hurt the company, right? Uh-huh. Well, these are the real veterans. They welcomed me. And that was something, you know. Um, let's talk again a bit more generally about filming. How real did it all feel, Ben Kaplan, who played Smokey Gordon? Um, I mean, it was very real and it was quite a dangerous place to be. You know, obviously they walked us through where, where explosions were going to be and made sure that, you know, people did get injured. Um, but, it, but for me, I, I, I sort of just loved the, the enormity of it because it just made me think, well, actually, I don't need to worry too much about imagining what this must have been like. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of living it. Mm. And I've always, I've said this before to people I've, I've, I've spoken to about Band of Brothers. It was the best history lesson for me as a human being about, you know, the realities of war, um, in reading the material, in being on those sets and, and actually reliving the experiences of that many people running around, there were tanks and, you know, mortar, mortar uh, explosions going off. And it was, it, was a, it was a very, very scary and very intense experience. But it meant that you were just, you were giving an experience of what it must be like for, for anybody to go through that situation. And, and again, I think that's shown in the performances that, you know, you just, you just feel like those guys are really going through what they went through. And, um, and that authenticity and that detail just helped our job as actors. Philip Barantini, you played Skinny Sisk. When the, whenever there was explosions or, or gunfire, that was all, you know, <clears throat> nowadays when you, when you have like a, a, a gun on set and, you, and it's fired, usually you can either fire blank still, but the, 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 usually they, they don't use blanks. They just use a, it's, it's like a, I don't know what it is, but it, it's like an air pistol sort of thing. It doesn't really make a sound. And then they put the sound effect in later. Uh-huh. But with, with the weapons that we had, uh, the M1 rifles, they were real. Uh, they were discontinued actual World War One, uh, World War Two M1 rifles that we were using. So they made the noise, the exact sound. You know, the only thing that was that was different was that the sort of kickback on on the gun didn't happen. So you had to fake that. But the rest of it was completely real. I mean, explosions and 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 everything that's going on around you. You know, it's it's so high. Um, the adrenaline is so high that you know you've got a, a set piece to do where you have to run from from one end of the street to the other or to, for, to you know, to, to go in a building and take a building out and, and, and do that kind of thing. And, you know, you rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. And when it comes to, to actually filming it, it's like literally like you're about to go to war. you like, the energy is so high. Um, so it felt completely real. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you're not in too much danger because of the health and safety aspect, but anything could go wrong. Yes, Renee Moreno, who played Joseph Ramirez. We felt safe with everybody in charge. However, we knew that we could hurt ourselves really easily if we didn't pay attention. Mm. You know, we had to listen and we had to make sure we followed our marks, especially when we knew where the uh, mortars were. And then they said, okay, we're going to shoot the scene in five, four. And they took out the markers and we're like, holy shit, where are the mortars? (laughs) 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 Holy crap. And we're running through this field and things are going off on, you know. We had to really pay attention. Yeah. Tim Matthews, who played Alex Mancala. I don't know how how anyone else feels about this, but I remember the very first time there was any kind of firefight at boot camp. And I think maybe it was that one we'd done a night maneuver and we'd been um we'd marched throughout the night we didn't know where we were going how long it was going to take Thursday nobody night. nobody knew where we were going <laughs> nobody knew <laughs> a big firefight right. in the pitch dark 
um, I nearly pissed my pants. I'm not exaggerating. There was a very <laughs> genuine feeling of, of terror that I had. It was really primal and it wasn't, you know, I could rationalise it away and I knew that there were blanks and I knew that I was in no danger, but fuck me. And Rick Warden, who played Harry Welsh. Go ahead. Yeah, but how near were you to Matt Settle, man? We'd all been trained faces and everyone forgot that because I swear to god I'd, I'd nearly lost an eye and an, an, an eardrum and god knows what else. But yeah, that's that's frightening. I really do need to say that episode nine has had a huge, huge effect on my life. It's why I've become a concentration camp historian. Um it's really moved me, but what I saw, I just, I didn't want that to happen to other people for it to be forgotten. And Ross in particular, your performance was so influential. Um, I need to know, how did you prepare for the scenes at the camp? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good question. Mm. Um, so we knew episode nine was coming <clears throat> and we knew what it was going to entail. Uh, and I think most of the boys will, will say this in certain episodes where they had more to do with. So certainly like eight, nine and 10 were pretty heavy for the up. Um, and so I knew that they were coming up and I, I knew what nine was going to be about. And we didn't really get a script that early in advance. But if you were heavily involved in a particular episode, some, at some point we'd take you to one side and sneak something or talk to you about something. So I knew it was coming up. I also knew it was going to be really German heavy. Um, and I don't speak German. Uh, and, uh, and so I knew that I had this big, uh, uh, you know, various speeches in German and I had to learn with the dialect and the translate. Um, and then there were discussions about whether or not I should go to one of the camps beforehand, like, the, you know, on a weekend to, to go and, and have a look at Krakow or uh, Landsberg. There was only one left at a seven. And after a lot of thought, I decided again um, because I wanted to relate how it would have felt for the guy seeing this thing for the first time. He wanted to capture that on camera. So we knew that they were building the set. Uh, it was close by to, to base camp, but it was still, you know, in the middle of the woods. But um, we all chose not to see it until the camera started rolling. Uh, and so we knew that they were building it. We knew what was coming. We, I, remember, I remember reading the script and being really, um, really affected by the script, like everybody was. Um, and... The, the show was a show, but it was a real bond between us all. So there was a lot of laughs. You know, we had a lot of good times. And when Nine came around, everybody just, just sat in it a little bit more. Um, because, you know, th these guys didn't know what they were going to walk into. You know, nobody knew about the concentration camps. The higher-ups did, but, but the, the grunt soldiers themselves, nobody knew what it, what, what it entailed. And if you ever spoke to any of the vets, they're all very, they kept it in their chest a little. They wouldn't really divulge much information. So it was all your own research. Um, really to get us to that place. And I remember the night before the camp, I had learned the German that I needed to learn. And I got a phone call from the producers and the translator saying, we've got it wrong. 
we've we've given you the wrong dialogue. It's not right. Um, and I was like, we shoot this tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, I know. And this is the correct dialogue. So <coughs> we learn this whole speech. So as an actor, there's a part of you trying to remember your lines going, I've got to go and do this thing. But also as a human being, you convey what that was going to be like seeing something that nobody had any idea what it was. So it's that great scene with my, uh, you know, with Paul and I think Christian and I think uh, Perko is there. I remember there's a few others remembering they walk out of the woods and they actually see the camp for the first time, but the audience don't see it. And I remember all of us just having that um, uh, reaction when we when we saw this it was incredible. The director was Franco again, so he's the same guy here. So, um, and David had family in the Holocaust, so it was really important to him to get it right. Philip, talk to us about arriving on set. The way we arrived on the set was we were all put onto the onto the uh, trucks and we were driven there. And there was cameras on, on on there was a bunch of cameras, some on the trucks with us and some you know sort of hidden uh, in places that we didn't. We did, I didn't know. We nobody knew where they were. Ross, how did you feel? And I remember us all just showing up and seeing this pure devastation. And, and like everything else in the show, they handled it with such authority and such respect, but also just such brilliant detail. So, you know, the smoke that you see, they had a lot of very frail um, folks there, being our, being our background actors. Um, they added some body makeup to some of them. Um, they did a little bit of green screen with some of them. Some of them were animatronics. Uh, and of course, you know, there was just like an abundance of, of bodies and mass graves. So it was a very, very strange thing to walk in. So, you know, asking how did I get there? It was very easy just by looking at it. You know, seriously, like just by watching what these actors were bringing, um, what the script was bringing, the, the mood on the set was pretty dense. Mm. Um, and so to get into that mindset you can imagine what it would be like for somebody to come across this for the first time now add on top that Joe was a Jew and add on top that you know he had German family in his blood I just found this incredible juxtaposition of, of this you know American soldier who speaks German who is Jewish who's finding out for the first time that his people have been persecuted and, uh, but that was all in the writing so seriously, it was about showing up and everybody just was affected by it the way that you see. I know that um, we wanted to send this around the room as well. If any of you, any of the others, because um, Alina wants to know, like, what is what was the feeling? Because if you that I, it's a brave thing to do not to let yourself see it before you started shooting it. But it must have been harrowing. Philip, it was a little bit overwhelming, wasn't it? And it was our initial first reaction of seeing the, the, the camp that they built. Um, and it was just like, it, I, I can't explain really. You, you sort of, you, you, you forget that you're acting and you forget that you're in a, you're in a movie and you forget that these people who are playing, you know, the, these, these victims are actors as well because they were so realistic and it was so well, well done. You know, the, the emotion was real that, that we felt. Certainly for me, anyway, it was it was heartbreaking, and, and and you know a lot of us had to sort of once once we cut the cameras, and that was the, you know we, we knew what we were what we were coming into. Now it was a lot of us had to go away and just sort of uh, process what we just seen, and 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 also you know re remember that it's it's a film it, we're filming and it's it's not real, but also remember like that that <laughs> the horrific things that did happen for real. You know that was that was definitely weighing heavy on on me personally during that whole um, segment it was it was it was really tough yes Robin Lang who played Babe Heffron it was yeah it was really somber I remember vividly it was really <coughs> somber um, period because by that time we'd been together for a long time and not only were we working together all week we were all going out at the weekends and and you know partying together and eating together and you know we were spending all of our time together so we were we were close and we were having a lot of fun we were all young and you know it was really it was a really happy set you know despite the the subject matter but i remember that period being really 
quite somber and I guess respectful, you know, because it was, it was a really stark set and those extras and the animatronics and, um, yeah, you just, it was very respectful and, and kind of restrained and I think a lot of people were quite, um, quite kind of reflective and ruminative over that. Mm. Um, over over that, you know, while we shot those sequences, I think today is the liberation of Koffering, isn't it? It is. I think today is the anniversary of. I think uh, it's the end of April, anyway. Yeah, was it? Um, Koffering, uh, the one that Easy Company um, helped to liberate. We Easy Company didn't arrive for a couple of days afterwards, but I think today's the day. That the just first, occurred to me. The first time that I went, um, to, uh, that I actually went to Landsberg, wasn't until probably eighteen years later. Hmm. And, uh, and like I said, I think there was seven uh, different camps in Ravensburg, uh, only two are surviving. Hmm. Germans got rid of, rid of the others. But I remember going there and just having that really surreal moment of, wow, we really got this correct. Yeah. And what they depicted it on the screen was like everything else that they did. I mean, you know, in Hollywood, we, we, you know, tweaks have to be made for entertainment purposes, but also for you know, um, and uh, but on this show, they were pretty damn good at keeping everything pretty much on key. This is why Rick Warden gone, mm. yeah. I remember it very like Ross is describing, actually, uh, very peculiar because I was in one of the trucks and. Just exactly as Ross has said, we'd had the opportunity, we'd turned down the opportunity to see any of the set. So I can't remember how many, it's all a fog of how many days we were actually there for, guys. But I do remember driving along in a truck and thinking, I don't know what we're going to see. I know what we're going to see in a, in a macro, in a macro sense, but actually micro wise, I don't know what it looks like. And then just pitching up. And I just remember it being very quiet there, incredibly quiet. And then, as Ross says, lots and lots of, of extras. And I don't know whether they they must have been primed beforehand to that, or that whole sequence of giving out the food at the gates. And when they came, when the gates were opened, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, it, yeah, I think I need to pass from there. Yeah. Someone else. I would just want to say thank you. Thank you so much because you guys, all of you, had some sort of input into who I am today. So, um, especially Ross with, with, um, with the scenes. Nalina, so, you're so sweet, darling. Thank you very much. Paul Woodage, our Bobfest coordinator. Go ahead. One of the actors was convinced he could, he could smell. He, he, he remembered there being a smell being pumped through of, like, you know, death or something. And the other said, no, 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 that, there was no smell. He convinced himself it was so real. Yeah, he managed to add a smell to his memory that wasn't there. Yeah, because, you know, because they can't have pumped smell out. That would be ridiculous. No, I mean, I know, I know they have these, um, these, um, they're like gas. Uh, what do you call them? Like, it, it's it's like a, a smoke machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's to create like you know atmos atmos. Uh, in, in the in, in the air sort of thing and I know that they had a lot of them around so there was a lot of, there was like smoke going through and stuff like that but and then you have a distinctive smell but certainly don't smell of you know of death mm. <laughs> so so yeah that that's you know a lot of actors have their own their own process and their own way that they work and you know th- there was a lot of actors on on Band of Brothers that were that were fairly method um, the method the method technique is the method is is basically you become that character and you believe 100% that you are that person. So I can believe that, you know, that certain people would have that, um, it would have that effect on them and you would believe that you could smell it. This episode, perhaps more than any other, relies on artistic license. And how did the veterans feel? Scott Grimes, who played Don Malarkey. No shit, this is, how, this is who Don Malarkey was as a human being as you know as i expected at least you know when he saw the whole series to maybe a compliment not that i wanted it but maybe you know he goes thank you whatever the one the first thing don malarkey said to me when he saw the series is i was not at that concentration camp and i'm very upset that you were there and yeah. that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, he wasn't there 
And uh, there's one small scene in episode nine of me walking through and with a, you know, with a handkerchief over my uh, mouth and Don Malarkey never said great work. He said, I'm very upset that, cause that's a huge thing for, to, you know, those guys that liberated that camp. And he said, I wasn't there. I had the flu and I felt really bad because it was too late by then. Yes. Jimmy Maggio, who played Frank Ponte. When episode nine came and I first read that script, that was the first time I went, Oh my God, you know, after all this time been working, Frank's got some stuff in here. This is great. And I'm reading it and reading, I'm just thinking concentration camps, he's running a fine winters, single handed, like all this stuff and this replacement O'Keefe. And I called Frank right away and I was like, Frank, here's what's going on. This is what's going on with the uh, <clears throat> with the show. And Frank said the same thing. He was like, uh, you know, no, I didn't find the concentration camps. I was still, you know, I, I didn't single-handedly find them. I didn't run back to HQ. I didn't do any of that. Meanwhile, I've been reporting back to the producers all the time, like, well, Frank was really crazy about hygiene, and, and, and that's why he did the toothbrush and the hair and the scissors, all that shit. So they were, like, listening to what I was saying, the production. Same thing with what, you know, Spate said about Muck going back, and, and they would add it in if, 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 it, if it worked. And I remember going back to them, and this is actors kind of, you don't do this, but at the same time, you didn't want to fuck it up so bad. Like, you didn't want to swing and miss and be smoking a cigarette and then your veteran never touched a cigarette in his life. And throughout the series, you have a cigarette in your mouth. And he's got to watch this thing and look like, oh, man, that sucks. Like, this kid is playing me. I never touched him. I was against him. I lost a family member smoking. Anyway, so when I, when I <clears throat> went to uh, – Frankel was doing nine. And I was like, David, I spoke with Frank. He never ran back to HQ and did all this. And, you know, he never did that. I said, you know – I'm just telling you what it was. I don't know if it's going to change. I don't know what needs to happen, but Frank didn't single-handedly find the concentration camps. And it was just sort of creative license. It's like, hey, man, here's what it is. It's a little too late. It is what it is. And Frank was very easygoing, you know, and he was like, oh, yeah, it is what it is. And he brushed it off. He didn't really, you know, think much about it. You know, Malachi wore a lot on his sleeve, uh, mm -hmm. so he, he was verbal about it. Frank was more like, nah, I don't, you know, it is what it is. But, well, we spoke to John Orlov actually, and he was saying that he just the guys wouldn't talk about it. So that one more than any of them is creative license. He said, "I think it's two paragraphs in the book because they." I don't remember that. I don't want to talk about that. Um, and so he literally had to go from nothing to craft that episode. He was told, "This is your time span, and it has to have the concentration camp in it. Go make it happen." And that was basically oh. he had two paragraphs to work on. Uh, Scott, when you look at the character arcs over the show, Malarkey is possibly the soldier who changes the most from happy-go-lucky at Tokoa to a kind of jaded combat veteran you see at the end. How much of that change was in the script and how much did you bring it as an actor? I got really lucky and here's why. I got really... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, I, I got really lucky because one, it was written from the... Before I even went to boot camp, I saw this thing, you know, on the page. And then two... The, my episodes that I did that, that Malarkey had to go through, what he went through, came at the fucking time where I personally, Scott Grimes, was hating this and wanted to go home, just like maybe he wanted to go home. And, mm -hmm. and also, you know, when, when he loses, when Muck uh, and, and, and Pinkala, and that they left. Tim and Richard weren't there filming for a while. So I was lonely and it all just kind of worked out luckily for me because I mean, I could sit here and tell you, yes, I went and did so much uh, research and get, you know, went into myself and stuff. No, it just luckily. Uh, that was the last episode that was shot though as well, wasn't it? Eight is the one where I think you're talking about. Is eight exactly is really, right. And it must've been, you know, oh, these sorry. guys have been away from home for 10, 11 yeah. months. You know what I mean? It's like for us, we all got to go home to our, every night to our own beds and stuff yeah. like that, which is, but it's that, it's, I don't know. I mean, just keen into what you're saying is like, you must have been so right. near, but so far away still. And yeah. So when I did I think, that, like in episode eight, when I did that shower scene, it's just me in the shower. I was fucking miserable, man. I mean, it was best cold. scene in the show, man. Best scene in the show. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it right now, man. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Any chance he gets. <laughs> yeah. Ross, go on. 
Oh, so, I don't yeah, know no, if you remember this or not, Scott. Scotty, you, you said something to me, and I don't know if you remember or not, but it was when we were watching the episodes kind of line up, mm -hmm. uh, because we shot episode eight last, and I always remember you turning around and saying, man, I sort of wish we had known exactly where the scripts were going to go because there was a difference in our arcs. And it's true, like you and I in nine and ten are very different to how we are in eight. You know, I, because I think, yeah. we shot nine, ten, then went back and did six, seven, eight. And by that time we got to eight, we were like weary and war torn and all that jazz. And nine and ten, we were still kind of in, you know, in a different mindset. And that always, that was always interesting to me to hear that from you because I agreed with you. Episode ten, Scott, um, the location got your seal of approval, didn't it? Dudes, I mean, making ten in uh, in Interlaken, Switzerland, was just like a gift. Yeah. That was like. Came on the train, Scotty. You came on the train. I remember this coming. Is a perfect, it's a perfect kind of where we were as brothers, having spent all this, you know, time together. I fell asleep uh, and missed the plane, and so I got on a train with my buddy, who was just visiting from uh, from the states, and I took this gorgeous train for hours and hours, and I get off and interlock in interlock at like 10 p.m. at night. I looked. It looked like I remember it looked like this little exactly what I would expect this little town to look like. And I get off and I look to my right, I look to my left and I say, okay, I guess I'll go to the left. And I'm going down this, this, this street, exhausted, just trying to get to the hotel. And Ross comes out of this bar. You remember this, buddy? You come out of this bar. Scotty, we're in a fight with these dudes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? But I said, are you kidding me in my head? But then I went, fuck it. I got <laughs> It never ended up happening. When we didn't end up fighting anybody, but I was like, "That's." I mean, I'm not a fighter, but now Ross is telling me, "Help me! We need your help." I'm like, "Fuck yeah, man! I'm gonna help my brothers, man." Dale Die did that though, as much as you all hate his guts in boot camp. <laughs> that's down yeah, to Dale Die. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Peter Youngblood Hills, who played Shifty Powers. What's your fondest memory on set? Can I just say that the one thing I remember with uh, with Matthew was a, a he would i think it was with ian bailey they would they were singing this song uh pardon me boy is that the chattanooga choo choo that was then scott track 29 we weren't allowed to put it in the show well that was it and i remember that i it was like one of the most beautiful moments beautiful things i and i i've got this I've got this, I'm living with a 92-year-old woman at this moment, and we're of thinking about a song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, it's... Isn't she a cougar? You might need to clarify this, Peter. Uh, Some snotty lines at work. She's my landlady. <laughs> oh, yeah. My landlady. She is. <laughs> and it was, anyway, it was a song that we were, we were singing together last night, and I was thinking, I was... Searching a lot of that stuff, wasn't he? As I remember it, Matt had a load of that old music He's a wonderful singer. Tim, I I remember Scott Grimes singing it. That's what I remember. So forgive me, Matthew, if he uh, if if it was you. But I remember Scott suggesting that he, Richard, and I do it because we were in the Mortar Squad and we do it like a little barber shop uh, trio, not a quartet, obviously. And uh, we weren't allowed to because uh, it's racist. When I heard you, that was after boot camp. I think it was after. Rick Warden? Yeah, yeah Matt, you, I remember you having it in Austria, in, in Switzerland, Matt, having that well, music I remember on a loop. You, you, you were, you were, no, it was you were singing it with a, with a group. You were doing a barbershop kind of thing. Matt, yes. And Tim, do you, I mean, Tim, you remember uh, Scotty Graham singing it, right? So uh, I remember. have to get to the bottom of this. So, was alcohol involved? <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I remember Matthew Honestly, singing. it was on set. Scott, Richard and I were singing it. I remember, I remember that. But Matt, you had a sort of playlist of that stuff, didn't you, during that year? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, we, we uh, I, I grew up singing a lot of that, that stuff. And uh... Peter? I don't think, I don't, th I, I don't think, maybe Bailey wasn't singing it because I don't know if Bailey can sing, but I know you were singing and you could sing and I was, I was like, Ah, that's that's what I want to hear. These are entirely <laughs> separate memories and entirely separate stories. Oh, uh, maybe they're separate memories. Yeah, yeah. Go on, Matt. Hey, Tim, do you did you ever get to hear Babe Heffron sing with uh, some of the other vets? 
Wait, well, they would sing no, like Nancy Oats and Dozy Oats and Little Nancy. Yeah. You guys remember that? No. Yep. Hey, hey, pardon me, boys, but do you want to sing that song now? Pardon yeah, me, boys, is that the Chattanooga Choo Choo? Come on, everybody, ah, one, two. Ah, Track 29. Ah, well, you can give me a shy. That's the line. Can you afford to board the Chattanooga Choo Choo? I've got my fare. And just, just a trifle to spare. You leave that pencil in the magazine and then you're in Baltimore. Dinner in the diner. Nothing could be finer than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina. All right, that's enough. <laughs> you know, I, You're I muted, Alex. Like I had no idea. You, this is awesome. Is it really 20 years? Is it? Yeah. 20, 20 years, man. 20 years. Yeah. 20 years indeed. That's it for today. Um, join us tomorrow when we will be talking about uh, the responsibility that the guys felt in playing real people and we'll also be talking to them about their relationships with the veterans that they played um, and the veterans that were friends with the men that they played bring a box of tissues because uh, you will cry we all have um, until then don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as one dollar a month um, you just have to go to www.historyhack.podbean.com we would muchly appreciate it uh, we would love to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis uh, don't forget to follow us on twitter at hack underscore history and it's the same id on instagram as well there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.